Good morning, church. My name is Mark, and um, well done on making it through the torrential downpour into the building today. When I woke up this morning, I, I had a quick thought of, would they accept preaching via Zoom? And um, I had to uh, gather some courage and be here, and so have you, and what a wonderful time of worship. I just think the Lord's honoring faithfulness this morning and coming to be in His presence, and um, you know, I just want to encourage you, if you're sitting at home, maybe consider coming to the 10, because I think God's in the house this morning. We are heading into Easter week. We've done a lot of announcements around Easter. We've got a lot to look forward to. And this Friday is Good Friday. And today we arrive in the text at the morning of Good Friday. Jesus has been up all night, abandoned by his disciples, exposed to one of the worst kangaroo courts in history. A kangaroo court is a court that is filled with kangaroos. No logical reasoning going on, no evidence needed. A predetermined outcome has been decided, and we're just going through the motions until this thing is done. And as morning dawns, the justice circus progresses to the court of Pilate. And in this sermon, we're going to consider three men, a hapless Roman leader, a Jewish rebel, and a king no one wanted. We're in Mark chapter 15, verse 1 to 20, and um, I'd like you to turn there. It should be up on the screen to help you if you need it. I'm going to read it with, uh, for us now. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him uh, release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisted, twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him 
and they led him out to crucify him. The first uh, thing we see in the text this morning that might seem a bit strange, at least it did to me when I read it at first, was that um, they took Jesus to Pilate first thing in, mor- in the morning at break of dawn. Not much is going to happen if you come to my house at break of dawn and seek of something. So I thought that's a bit odd. And then I was uh, intrigued to find that it's historically accurate. The Roman uh, consuls started work at first daylight and would finish work at around one o'clock so that they could enjoy the afternoon. And that's probably the reason why they've stayed up all night trying to try Jesus in their own court so that they can get him ready to be presented to Pilate first thing in the morning. They want the deed done on that Friday, and there's a lot of ground still to cover. This is not a fait accompli. I'm going to hopefully show you in the text today that for much of this passage, they're probably not going to get what they want. Um, And so they know they've got a lot of work to do. They get him to Pilate first thing in the morning, and Pilate is at work, as he would have always been. And the first thing he has to do that Friday is try and understand what's going on uh, with Jesus. But a a second question rose up for me was, why do you need to take him to Pilate at all? You've tried him, you've convicted him, you've sentenced him to death. Why send him to the Roman leader and risk a reversal? And even then, it's fascinating to see that because of the Roman oppression in the area, the scepter And the law and the power of Jerusalem has been removed from them. They cannot even kill someone according to their own law anymore. That authority no longer lies with them. They are dependent upon the Roman leaders. The only ones who can execute now are the Romans. And so they need Pilate to agree with them and to help them execute their judgment. And so we arrive at this moment where the Jews are hoping they can convince Pilate that Jesus is worthy of death. And this is a problem, because all night their own court has struggled with evidence. In the Jewish court system, you had to have multiple witnesses and the, the, the testimony had to line up. And they couldn't even get that right in their own court. All night, the testimony has not lined up. And the only thing they can get Jesus on at the end of the evening or the early hours of the morning is when they Uh, ask him if he's, or he says that he's uh, God, and so they try him for blasphemy. But Rome and Pilate couldn't care less about some person who is crazy enough to think that they're God. It doesn't matter to Rome or to Pilate. So now they've got to bring Jesus, who they've just tried, but they've got to make him look dangerous enough and a threat to Rome, because that's what's going to get Pilate to agree with them. And um, it matters not one stitch to him. All he cares about is Rome, and he wants order and submission. And he is struggling, because Jerusalem is a backwater territory. No one really wanted to be sent there in the Roman Empire. He would have been hoping to be promoted at some point and get out of there. These guys were constantly uprising and rebelling, and he had uh, a few black marks next to his name already. Um, So he he just wanted order. And so they bind Jesus in chains, and they give him this appearance of a dangerous criminal. And then they tell Pilate that Jesus claims to be king. 
Now that word would have triggered something in Pilate. That would have been a problem. The last thing Rome wanted was for the Jews to get, gather themselves together and formulate some organization where there's a king in charge marshalling troops who's going to now come against Jeru uh, the Roman uh, authorities. Uh, the, the Jews were rebelling anyway, even without a leader. Now, if there was a king in the midst, that was a problem. So this needed to be investigated. And um, their plan is clear. Jesus is portrayed as dangerous to Rome, a king trying to marshal troops to stage a rebellion. And if this is true, Pilate must stop it. And so Pilate asked Jesus this question, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus gives a very intriguing answer your translations will uh, translate it differently. But why I like the ESV is the ESV tries its best to translate it as accurately as possible to what the original Greek was saying. And so in the text that you would have seen on the screen, Jesus' answer was quite intriguing. It was, you have said so. Are you king of the Jews? You have said so. What does that mean? Does that mean yes? Does that mean no? Um, the expression was a well-used expression of the time. You often would have used it, and what it meant, the meaning it conveyed was this. Yes, but not in the way that you think. Are you king of the Jews, Jesus? Yes, but not in the way that you think. That's what you have said so means. And we see this unpacked by John in greater detail. It should come up on the screen for you. John chapter 18, verse 33 to 37. Um, says the account like this. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. What Jesus is saying here is I am a king, but not in the way that you fear. I'm not gathering together an army and I'm not a threat to Rome. Jesus' point was, if I am this king that they're portraying, my followers would be here. They would be already offering resistance, but you see no one. No one's here to stop this thing from happening. And so I'm not a king in the sense that you understand. And it seems that Pilate gets it. Because if Pilate believed them, he would have had reason to execute Jesus on the spot. But he doesn't believe them. He ends up going back to the Jewish leaders and uh, saying that he finds uh, Jesus to be innocent. He doesn't see him as, as a threat to Rome. And I want to, you to picture the story. Mark is summarizing um, this uh, story quite quickly. John, if you're interested, go to John. John takes a bit more time over it. The, the Jewish leaders have shown up to Pilate's offices, but because Pilate is a Gentile and he's dirty, they cannot enter in. So Jesus is taken in, 
Jesus is interviewed and questioned by Pilate inside, and whenever Pilate wants to speak to the Jews, because of their own kind of, you're dirty, we don't like you, so now we need you to help us, we need favor from you, but we're going to stand outside because you're filthy. He's got to keep going backwards and forwards between the two to figure out what's going on. And so he leaves Jesus and goes back to the Jewish leaders and says to them, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. He's not what you say he is. He's not a threat to Rome. And then they start hurling false accusation after false accusation. And Luke, again, helps us. Mark doesn't mention what these false accusations are, but I've got this on the screen for you. Luke mentions a couple of them. In Luke 23, verse 2, it says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. That's the, the text. And this is just a bold-faced lie. What he actually said was, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And he did it publicly in front of all of them. So they are spinning the story to turn Jesus into this rebel against Rome, this threat to Rome. These very testimonies did not line up the night before in their own court, but they're happy to use them as if they did line up. And false accusation after false accusation. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate comes back to Jesus and asks him to defend himself against the accusations and is amazed at the silence. Jesus' silence is interesting for a couple of reasons. The first is it fulfills prophecy. So in Isaiah 53 verse 7, uh, Isaiah said this hundreds of years earlier, he was oppressed and he was afflict afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. He's not stumped. He's not outwitted. He could easily defeat the Jewish leaders right now. They have no evidence. Their arguments don't make sense. Jesus has shown previously when he's needed to get out of tough spots, he has the wisdom to defeat them. It is not that he doesn't know what to say. He is choosing not to speak. He is showing that he is in full submission to the Father's will. And so he remains silent. God is at the wheel here, not the Jewish leaders, not Pilate. And Jesus is willing for everything to happen. But another reason it's interesting is the response it garners from Pilate. Because normally silence is an admission of guilt. I've got small kids, trust me, when I ask them a direct question about who did that wrong thing, if there isn't, you, sometimes there's lying, it wasn't me, but if there's just silence, did you hit your brother? <laughs> I don't look on silence as, oh wow, you know, what a humble person, what a good faithful person. Silence is usually an admission of guilt. It's a my brain's not working cleverly enough to get me out of this, so. And Pilate doesn't look at Jesus' silence and think, oh, therefore you are doing all the things that they say. He looks at him in amazement. His perception, he actually has favor on him. His perception is, this guy is innocent. They are false. But he is willing to just 
let them say whatever they want to say. He is not going to say anything about it. Pilate is onto their scheme. And Pilate is not their friend. He does not like the Jews. The Jews do not like him. And he is onto the fact. I mean, this is not a very clever plan. If they thought this was going to fool Pilate, here you are. You are clearly wanting to overthrow the Roman Empire. You have led rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. You won't even enter his courtroom because he's filthy. And now you come with Pilate. There's this bad man who wants to overthrow the great Rome that we love. You should sort him out. Pilate smells a rat. And he has no reason to side with them, to give them what they want for their unknown reasons. He has favor on Jesus. He's amazed at Jesus' um, silence. If I was a betting man, and I'm not, but if someone had to ask me to lay a bet on is Jesus going to get crucified at this point in the story, I wouldn't do it. Because he cannot get crucified without Pilate's yes. And Pilate does not want to do it. And he says it over and over again. This man is innocent. I find no fault in him. I don't like you. I don't know what you're up to, but I'm not part of it. But, as I've said before, who's at the wheel? God is at the wheel. And what does God want to happen? God wants Jesus to die on the cross. And I want you to see that it's actually unlikely in this moment because everything's about to turn on its head and that should leave you in awe and wonder of God's sovereign hand and power to be able to get what he wants done, even when it seems unlikely. And he does it through a mistake. Pilate makes an error. He's perplexed. He doesn't want to give the Jewish leaders what they want, and he doesn't think Jesus is guilty of anything, but he is worried about his position of leadership. He's worried about this backwater uh, city that he has to oversee that constantly gives problems and rebels against Rome, and he does not want a riot to take place. And so he's trying to figure out what he must do with Jesus. He doesn't want to be perceived as a weak leader, doesn't want the riot to happen. And this is why every year he had a practice in place where he would release a prisoner. He's doing it to appease the crowd, to show them he's this good, gracious leader. He'll do something nice to the Jews every now and again. But in his perplexion, he's forgotten that he has this outlet. So I always, whenever I've remembered the story, I always thought he's the one that comes to the crowd and says, oh, let me release to you Jesus because I release someone every year. But in the text we see the crowd actually says to him, are you going to release to us one of the prisoners? And that's the first time he has the thought, okay, this is my way out. I will offer to them the, the innocent teacher. Surely if I offer them the innocent teacher, they will accept the innocent teacher as their prisoner to be released. The other option was a guy called Barabbas. He was a murderer and a thief, and he had caused many problems for Rome. That's what insurrection is. He was one of the rebels uh, against Rome, and he's sitting in prison there. And um, Pilate thinks 
that this is his way out of this dilemma. He's going to offer Jesus to the crowd. They're going to accept Jesus, and then problem is solved. However, it backfires spectacularly. By offering Jesus to the crowd, Pilate has let the penchant of power, which sits with him and him alone, move from him to the crowd. And the crowd's decision is surprising in some ways, but in others it's not. You would think they would take Jesus, the one that they'd heard so gladly, just days before Jesus is teaching in the temple and he's uh, getting, trying to get, they're trying to trap him and he's answering with great wisdom. And it says, and the crowd heard him gladly. They were in his court. The reason why the, the leaders are not attacking him is because they fear the crowd. So you would think that this crowd that favored Jesus, when he is offered to them, he, they would accept Jesus. But there's something more complex going on over here. When Pilate offers Jesus to the crowd, he offers Jesus as Pilate's preferred candidate. And the crowd hates Pilate. So Pilate messes things up by his pride. He attaches himself to Jesus and goes, and it becomes clear to the crowd, I want to release Jesus to you. That's my candidate. And the Jewish leaders at that moment, they're among the crowd. They still have influence. These people are still their followers. And they start stirring the crowd up and saying, no, 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 we want Barabbas. So now this, if it was Jesus versus Barabbas, I think it would have been an easy decision. But it's not Jesus versus Barabbas. It's Pilate versus the Jewish leaders. And in the um, commotion and excitement, and you can get a... A crowd is not a logical um, entity. Strange things happen when crowds start to get excited. And people do really funny things. There's not always a lot of thinking going on. And they start to shout for Barabbas. They want Barabbas to be released. Some commentators have suggested that it was a renter crowd. So um, the, the Jewish leaders got all of their followers together, put all this crowd together, so that when this moment came, they would be able to stir them. Now, whether it was a renter crowd and the Jewish leaders have thought that cleverly to organize things or not, the point being, whatever the reason, Pilate is stuck because the crowd who he has offered the power to are asking for Barabbas, and now he can't uh, go back on his offer. And the odds on Jesus being crucified have shortened dramatically. But Pilate has one more trick up his sleeve. It doesn't show up so easily in Mark. But again, I'm going to turn to John, and you're going to see uh, what Pilate tries to do. So he satisfies the crowd by releasing Barabbas. But he hopes he might still be able to save Jesus. And he asks for Jesus to be scourged. Now, a scourging is an awful, awful punishment. When you read it in Mark, and it just says this, that um, uh, in verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. It just sounds like Pilate's gone all bloodthirsty and decided, we're not just going to crucify this guy, let's scourge him as well. And a scourging would be an unnamed amount of blows with a 
uh, object with spikes and hooks on it, and the whole point would be to rip flesh out. And Josephus, uh, the historian, attended many scourgings, and he said sometimes the person who was scourged didn't even get to the cross. They died in the scourgings. You would see the organs. You would see the bones. It was, if you've watched Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson gets that scene, which is very graphic, from this historical record. And Pilate gets Jesus beaten within an inch of his life. It seems that it's cruel and brutal, but in John we see what Pilate was thinking. He is actually trying to save Jesus. In John chapter 19, verse 1 to 4, it says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, flogged is the same as this scourging, and you're going to see that because of what happens next. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. See, that hasn't happened yet in Mark. They put the crown of thorns on his head. They array him in a purple robe. They come up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, that's him going out again to the Jewish leaders. With Jesus, beaten within an inch of his life, barely able to walk, parades Jesus one more time in front of them saying, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. What's he hoping for? He's hoping that there's going to be mercy. He's hoping that they're going to see how badly punished Jesus already is. And they're going to say, it's enough. But he's wrong. They see Jesus again. And they uh, demand that he is crucified. And Pilate has run out of moves. There's nothing left for him to do. I want to move off from Pilate onto our second person. I'm not going to spend as much time on Barabbas, but it's, this is an important part of the text. Barabbas's name, you can actually work it out. Um, Bar is the first part of the name, and Bar always means son. So when uh, Jesus speaks to Peter, he says, Simon Bar Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. I would be Mark Bar Mike. All right? Matt Bar Peter. Bar means son. So Barabbas, you might have already got there. Bar is son, Abba. Bar, Bar Abba. His name means son of the father. Take a moment to think about that. What is God doing here? On the one hand, you've got the son of God. On the other hand, you've got the son of the father. Three crosses were prepared for that morning. They don't build the crosses on the morning. They've been building the crosses during the week. Three crosses are prepared. One of them is for Barabbas. When I was on a missions training um, at 19, let me check time before I get too excited. Um, I had a friend, his name was Johnny. He was uh, the most gifted uh, person I've ever met in drama. Musician, drama, worship, he could do it all. And on Good Friday, this was 2001, I remember it like yesterday. That's how good he was. On Good Friday, he does a, a one-man play that he writes himself. I've tried to check 
now with internet, you should be able to, I've thought, did he copy it from somewhere? And I don't want to like give him praise when actually he's just copied it. But I've searched the internet and I cannot find this play, the script that he did. He did say that he wrote it himself. And what happened that morning is he's sitting on a chair. There's nothing. It's just him and a chair. But he's dressed like a Jew. And he becomes Barabbas in front of our eyes. It was the best play I've ever watched. I only saw it once and I've never forgotten it. It was so detailed, right down to what Barabbas would have heard from his prison cell. Barabbas would have only heard two things. Two things were shouted so loudly from the crowd. He probably couldn't hear Pilate very well, probably couldn't hear much else, but two things are shouted that morning from its answers to questions Pilate asks. And the two things would have been Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And the second one, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Johnny is Barabbas in his cell going, that's right. That's what I deserve. A murderer expecting to be crucified, waiting to be crucified, deserving to be crucified. And then the guards come and open the cell doors and he's free. He's done nothing to deserve freedom. He was stuck in the state he was in. He could do nothing to change it, but someone came and took his place. The Son of God will hang on a cross that was built for the Son of the Father. Every single one of us is the son or daughter of a human father, except Jesus. We are all Barabbas. Barabbas represents you, and his name is not a mistake. His place in the story is crucial. God could have just had Jesus crucified without taking another man's place, but he chose for him to replace someone, and God chose for that person's name to be Barabbas. He was sending you and me a message. Jesus took your place. The cross Jesus hung on was the one built for you. We are all in a prison cell from the day we are born, and we cannot get out. There's nothing we can do to get out. But because Jesus took our place, the prison doors have swung open. And we can go free. Not all will go free, but we can go free. And my final point this morning is a king no one wanted, but a king that's worthy of worship. We find the soldiers mockingly worshiping Jesus. They do this because it fulfills prophecy. They do this because they do not recognize his kingship. The significance of this moment is that now what is done in jest will one day be done in authenticity because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But it's too late if you wait for him to reveal himself. The day of salvation is now. Praise God that he waits, that he has not come back yet. We long for his return. We, 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 should, we ask for him to return. There's two things in tension there. But as he delays, there's 
a reason to pray is because there's still time for people to come to faith. You can't come to faith when he shows up. It's too late. You will bow. Every knee will bow. But many will be lost. Because the moment to choose to worship Jesus is now. And the ones who are saved are those who recognize that Jesus is king of all. And they respond to him with real worship now. As we try and apply this text this morning, I've joked with Matt before, I said, usually I think I'm doing well, and then the time just flies, but we're on track. But as we try and apply the text this morning, I want you to consider these three people. Pontius Pilate, Barabbas, and the king. Let's start with Pilate. He's intrigued by Jesus. He asks him questions. He tries to understand who Jesus is, but he's not saved. He's not a follower of Jesus. The Coptic church have sainted him, which is ridiculous, because they see him as a protector in the story. But he never demonstrates what it takes to follow Christ, which is a surrender of your life and worship. There are many like Pilate in our world today. Questioners, people who find Jesus interesting. They try and find out who he is. They try and understand more about him. They ask good questions, but they never go any further. They might be convinced of his innocence and his goodness, as Pilate was, but they do not see a king who is worthy of worship. Full submission and worship. What about Barabbas? Even though Barabbas is saved from earthly punishment, we cannot know that he is saved from eternal punishment. When he leaves his cell that day, does he turn and look and consider the man that stood in his place? Does he recognize him as king and live a life of surrender and worship to him? We don't know. We know nothing of Barabbas after he leaves that cell. He is simply a recipient. And I see that in many people. People that are grateful for Jesus. They might uh, see Jesus as a savior or a replacement. But that doesn't translate into lives of worship to a king. Though Jesus died for all, the work of salvation on the cross is only effective in the lives of those who recognize him as king and worship him. I want you to hear that. Those prison cells are open for everyone. He has died for all, but it's only effective in the lives of those who choose to respond to him as king and worship him. That's how you walk out. You don't actually walk out. You come out on your knees. You come down out with your head bowed in worship. It's the only way. I did a wedding yesterday. And um, this couple, they fairly newly saved. Um, 
she gave her life to Christ, I think, a couple of years ago, and he gave his life to Christ a year and a half ago. And I've been part of their journey since the beginning. That's why they asked me to marry them. It was a wonderful privilege. The way it happened was she, I called her during lockdown because I had a list of small groups. Small groups couldn't meet anymore, and I was asking the small group leaders, just send me the stragglers, people that you, know, you haven't heard from for a while. Maybe they don't attend Zoom meetings, and I'll try and follow up. So she hadn't, she'd lost touch with them, but she was still, um, you know, trying her best to follow Christ, but she was a little bit on the back burner. So I give her a call, she gets excited again, she says, Mark, I'm coming back, I'm going to get back involved. By the way, I've met this guy, but he's not a Christian. What do you think? I had a few thoughts, but what we agreed on was, I will meet with him and you for supper. And then I'll tell you what I think. So once we were through that phase of lockdown and we could have people in our homes, we did wait. We didn't do that straight away. I remember doing it, I think it was in that October, November. Have them for supper. And I could tell straight away, this guy's not saved. She's very pretty. So my alarm bells are ringing. But there was something there. Something was happening in that guy. And at the end of the evening, I said to her, I'm surprised. I thought I was going to say something else to you, but I'm going to say, be careful. But I think God might be at work here. And a year later, I baptized him. And now, uh, however many months later, they get married. At the wedding, two moments strike me. There's this worship song that they've asked for. Now, a lot of the people there aren't saved. You can tell, you know, when you get, let's sing a worship song. Everyone's like frowning and uh, you know, turn to the, the pamphlet and everyone's like, like, you hear nothing coming from the crowd. And there she is in front of everyone. At my own wedding, I struggled to lift my hands because I was concerned what the unsaved people would think. No one else is worshiping, but she doesn't care because she loves Jesus. And then the second moment, which really threw me, was at the speeches when his dad gets up and I mean, his dad's making lots of bad jokes. But then at the end he goes, the best moment of my life happened a year and a half ago. When my son called me, and he said, I've given, I've given my life to Christ. I want you to hear that. I'm not a recipient here. I have given my life to Christ. That's how I know someone's saved. It's when the response of the heart isn't give me heaven, give me more, I'm going to receive, give me the free cell, uh, let me walk out of here. 
What happens with the person Jesus heals, the blind person, Bartimaeus? How do we know he's saved? It's because Jesus says, Jesus gives him what he wants. He gives him sight, and then Jesus says to him, go your way. And what does he do? He goes with Jesus. That's how he's saved. It's not because he gets healing. It's because his response to getting something from Jesus is, I will follow you. I will give you my life. How do we know Barabbas is saved? Only if, and the text doesn't say, only if he walks out of that cell, turns to the crowd where Jesus is dying on the cross for him and decides, I am going to give you my life. That's how we know. And I want to ask you this morning, as we consider the king no one wanted, the disciples abandoned him. The Jews rejected him. Pilate didn't know what to do with him. The Romans mocked him. Barabbas had never heard of him, but was happy to take advantage of him. What will you do with him today? Let's pray. Father, this morning as we just spend a moment being quiet, I pray that your spirit would come and speak to us now. I want to say to you, some of you in this room, I think, are asking questions, and the questions are good. We must ask them. But I want to challenge you. At some stage, you need to move from questioning to faith. You need to make a decision that you're going to put your faith in Jesus. What are you going to do with him? Some of you maybe have believed in him for most of your lives. You know that he's real. You know what he's done for you. You understand the prison cell doors are open, and you're happy to walk out. But I want to ask you, are you living your life in surrender, and are you worshiping him? There's an opportunity today, even if you've been saved for a long time, Matt shared it in the prayer. He said, let's pray for salvation. Let's pray that people will come to Christ at first, but let's even pray for those who've come to Christ that it would be like we've come to him at first. And it's easy to drift. I'm speaking as someone who knows what it is to drift. I'm speaking as someone who knows what it is to be distracted and to um, make life about me. What will you do with Jesus this morning, believer? I want to encourage you, come and bow at his feet and worship him. Surrender your life again to him. Say, Lord, I'm going to live my life for you. My life for you. What you say goes. You're the captain of the ship.
I trust you. I love you. You are worthy of my worship. In Jesus' name, amen. This is very strange. It's 29 minutes past nine and I'm done. So uh, please uh, enjoy uh, the rest of your Sunday. I think we, last time I said there's coffee, I do see coffee, there is coffee. It's a nice cold Sunday morning. Go and enjoy fellowshipping in one another's presence. And we will see you, not on Sunday, Friday, Thursday. Thursday night. Awesome.